consider it a privilege to be gathered with you as God's people tonight. You are, uh, you're a very special people to God. And, uh, uh, I trust we understand uh, the unique privileges we have of being the elect people of God. It's my conviction that uh, the Lord wants to bless us, what does the Scripture say, like the early and the latter rain. And uh, maybe this is the early rain that we've been experiencing here tonight, but uh, uh, I'll be pleased if the Lord uh, uh, will, be, will, will bless us uh, as profoundly as He has blessed us with rain today. I'm going to begin this evening by uh, reading the text. So would you turn with me to Romans chapter 12? I'm going to read the first uh, 13 verses, and I'm going to ask you to stand, those of you who can, if you would stand to the reading of the text. So Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 13. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be it transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has given to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lacking in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly, in prayer, distributing to the necessity, the needs and the necessities of the saints, given to hospitality. You may be seated. I will point out, uh, first of all, this evening that there is no reference made concerning the church, the body of Christ, in the first eleven chapters of the uh, of the book of Romans. Uh, however, in chapters 9 through 11, uh, these chapters certainly are instructive to us as, as the church because what happened to Israel uh, can happen to the church if we assume on our relationship with God and don't guard against apostasy and don't guard against dead orthodoxy as well. It's not until we come to the uh, practical section of the book of Romans, which is Romans chapter 12, that uh, Paul begins to address the church as such. The, the church as a body is alluded to for the first time in verses 4 and 5 of, of Romans chapter 12, and then only indirectly. But then when you stop to think about it, the, the whole practical section of the book of Romans, Romans uh, beginning at verse 12 and, and especially going through chapter 15, the whole practical section of Romans is taken up with Paul directly or indirectly addressing issues that relate to the church, the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we noticed last night, the, the, the church's relationship with the world is addressed. Paul uses a plural form there and said, I beseech you therefore, brethren. So he's talking to the church. And then in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 12 to verse 8, the individual Christian is referred to as finding his place in the body of Christ. And then in, in, in verses 9 through 13, 
uh, the individual Christian's interpersonal relationship, uh, his relationships, is referred to in the body of Christ, in the church. And then uh, in, in chapter 12, beginning in verse 14 through verse 21, the, the Christian or the church's relationship uh, is addressed as it relates to those who are outside of the church. And then, of course, as you know, Romans chapter 13, uh, the, the Christian or the church's relationship was, uh, is, uh, is addressed in relation to secular government. And so, uh, and then, of course, chapter 15 is, is, is uh, very forceful in speaking about uh, chapter 14 and 15, is uh, speaking about interpersonal relationships and conflicts in the body of Christ. And it's really chapter 14 that will be ending up here on Sunday morning. And I want to have you notice the title of my message for this evening. It is Finding and Filling Your Place in the Body of Christ. It is obvious from the title of this lesson that, that I'm going to bring to you this evening that I assume several things that several things are true. First of all, I'm assuming, first of all, that as a result of, as, of having our lives transformed by the power of the gospel and being made right with God, that we become a member of the church, the body of Christ. I find it interesting as I read the book of Acts, which I just did recently, and I'm still uh, in the latter part of it uh, every day. I, I find it interesting that nowhere in the book of Acts do the apostles admonish new believers to join church. Why is that true? But it, but it still it does say that as many as believed were baptized and added to the church. Um, and, and uh, you know, um, they're, they're not added to an invisible church because the church is not invisible. It is visible. They're, so they're not added to some invisible mystical body, but they're added to the local church. There obviously was no dichotomy in the book of Acts, in the early church, between baptism and church membership. You see, as I, as I uh, look at the, 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 especially the book of Acts, and the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't seem to know anything of an individual believer not connected to a visible local body of believers. And so uh, that is one of the observations I would make uh, in relation to uh, the title of my message. In, in essence, I'm saying that finding and, and, fill, and filling your place in the body of Christ. And, and secondly, I also... Uh, would observe that the members of the local church were never meant to be merely bench warmers, but every member was intended to be actively involved in the body of Christ, as indicated especially in verses 4 and 5. Saying the same thing in perhaps a little bit different way, every member in the body of Christ had an office to fill. That comes true in verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 12. And so the title of my, I title this message, Finding and Filling Your Place in the Body of Christ. Um, and uh, I, I get the title from, of this message from verse 4, especially because of what it says about all members having not the same office. Notice again with me, verse 4 of Romans chapter 12. For as we have, as we have many members in one body, but not all members have the same function or the same office. 
So we being many are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. The King James uses the word office here in verse 4. So we being many are one body in Christ. I'm sorry, verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same office. Uh, and so uh, the implication here is that every member of the body of Christ has an office, has a function, but not everyone has the same office or the same function. Now, uh, the New King James uh, translates uh, the word office here as function, which, uh, which is a good translation of the Greek text. Because the word office, as used here, does not mean office as usually as we usually use the term, referring to a certain position one holds, the office of a bishop or the office of a deacon, as it's referred to in First Timothy chapter three. The word office here is really referring to a function, as it's translated in the New King James Version or a work that every member has. In fact, it's really referring to the spiritual gifting that each member has with which he or she serves the church. And these giftings, these functions, are, are listed in verses 6 to 8, which we'll briefly look at a little later on. And so, uh, so there is the uh, uh, the uh, the reason I, I give this title to this because I want us to understand that each one of us, and I believe you all you do, but each one of us have a place to fill. So finding and filling our place in the body of Christ. So one of the uh, the central ideas in verse 1 to 13, has to do with the importance of every member, each member of the local church, finding and filling his place in the church that he is a member of. Now, last evening, I gave exposition to verses 1 and 2. And, but in this lesson, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm backing up again and, and uh, uh, helping us to see verses 1 and 2 in the overall context as well. Because verses 1 and 2 fit into the larger text of, uh, of verses 1 to 13. Now, having said all that in the introduction, uh, I, I um, want to look at oh, four prerequisites to finding your place, finding and filling your place in the body of Christ, which I find in the first five verses. And I'm going to focus rather extensively this evening on the first uh, five verses. And I would like to attempt to give exposition uh, to the text as I see it intended here in these five verses. So the first five verses of, of chapter 12. Uh, let me read it again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to every man, to each one, a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members to one of another. So I'd like to, to uh, basically look at, at these five verses and, uh, and see what it tells us about the, uh, finding our place in the body of Christ. And, uh, and so I'm looking at four prerequisites 
from this, these five verses. Four prerequisites to finding and filling our place in the body of Christ. Four prerequisites, if you please, to exercising one's spiritual gifts. Four prerequisites to effectively serving God. And, and the first prerequisite that I would put forth here this evening is verse 1. And, and that is that one needs to be totally available to God. Be totally available to God. When we present our body to God as a living sacrifice, we in essence are dedicating and consecrating ourselves to God. And anything, you, you understand that anything that is consecrated to God is, is holy. Paul affirms that in verse 1 when he says, By presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we are holy. <laughs> holy and acceptable to God. To be holy means to be clean and free from sin and all uncleanness. To be holy also means to be set apart unto God. Uh, and, and to be to be set apart uniquely for God's use. And it means that we belong to God, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says that because we have been bought with a price, therefore we belong to God. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 Philosophically, as individuals, we tend to ask the question, Who am I? And what is the purpose of my life? I don't know, as you as young men, as young uh, women especially, have confronted that question, I suppose you have. I know I did as a young man. Who am I? And what is the purpose of my life? But Romans chapter 12, verse 1, challenges us to ask the question in a different way. And, and so uh, the, the question that comes out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is whose am I? And to whom do I belong? And, and of course the implication in verse 1 is we're set apart unto God. We, we have presented ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice. So we really belong to God. And, and once we... Uh, you know, but, and I say that by the virtue of our redemption, as is emphasized in, in 1 Corinthians 6, by virtue of our redemption, we belong to God. We are not our own. We belong to God. And, and once we discover who we belong to, we also discover the purpose of our lives. I said all that to re reinforce the fact that the first prerequisite to finding our place in the body of Christ is to be fully and totally consecrated to God. What I have called being fully available to God. See, there's something very compelling about a life that is totally available to God. The, the Bible tells us about men and women who, who were totally available to God, um, both in the Old Testament and in the New. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8 that Isaiah... When he heard the Lord say, Who will go? Then he said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah, when he stood in the presence of God, realized that he belonged to God, and he made himself fully and totally available to God. There's no doubt why. That's, there's no doubt why, why Isaiah was so extensively used as a prophet of God during very difficult times in the Old Testament. 
is because he was fully and totally available to God. Then there was Esther in the book of Esther. You know the story of Esther. But in Esther chapter 4, Esther, uh, she made a decision to do what God wanted her to do, even though it meant her possible death when she went into the presence of the king without, without an invitation. And she said, after, after Mordecai sent a message to her and said, who knows, but thou art come into the kingdom for the, such a time as this. And Esther said, if I die, I die. And she went into the presence of the king to plead for the lives of her people. She was available to God. She was totally available to God, regardless of the cost. And of course, there, is the, there was the, the, the Apostle Paul, who in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 said, I'm Paul the servant of Jesus Christ, the doulos of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. What all was Paul saying by saying that? Well, he was saying that I'm Paul and I'm available to God. I'm his doulos, I'm his slave, I'm his bondservant. There's no doubt in my mind that the Apostle Paul was fully and, and totally available to God. And that's why he was so uh, forcefully used and powerfully used by the Lord Jesus Christ as he stormed across the Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was fully and totally available to God. My question to you this evening is, are you available? Not, I'm not asking, are you capable? I'm asking, are you available? Because the first prerequisite to even finding your place and then fulfilling your place is to be fully and totally available to God. And verse 1 tells us what that means. It means that you must present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable, which is holy, and, and make yourself wholly available to Him. Wearsby says this. Consecration, that's what we talked about last night, consecration leads to concentration meaning it leads to a focused life. Like Paul said in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Holy and totally available to God. There's a simple truth here, and it's this, that God has never used a man that was not available to him. Someone has said, that the greatest ability is availability. So the first prerequisite that I would point your attention to that is necessary to find and fill your place in the body of Christ, in the church, is to be fully and totally available to God. 
The second prerequisite that we have, is, I believe, in, is found in, in verse 2. And that is a renewed mind. We talked about that last night. But a renewed mind, I just would reinforce again this evening, that a renewed mind is not only uh, important, it's not only the, uh, uh, the, the key to the problem of worldliness, but, but it also insists that a renewed mind is an important prerequisite to finding and fulfilling our place in the body of Christ. The, the question I would ask you is this. Is it possible to have a changed heart, be born again, and continue to have an unrenewed mind? And what happens when that is true? I, I sometimes have referred this as um, um, schizophrenic Christianity. Because <laughs> you're pulled in, in two directions when, when this is the condition. So I'm asking you, is it possible to have a renewed heart, to be born again by the Spirit of God, but still to have an unrenewed mind? Paul reinforces the importance of having a renewed mind. Is this what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as being carnal? He talks about carnal. Now, there are, and I know that there are some who think that uh, when Paul talks about someone who is carnal, he's, he's not, a, not a believer, he's not a Christian. But my observation is that in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, to, he says I am speaking to you as brethren. <laughs> and then he talks about carnality. And, 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 and addresses some of them as being carnal. Now, I, I realize that there are two aspects of carnality, and I don't have time to go into that, but there are two aspects of carnality here. But, but uh, uh, I believe it's, it's possible, I believe that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 addresses Christians as carnal. Uh, and, and it seems to me the, the, the best explanation in, in, in my mind for this is that one has been changed, one has been born again, but he lives by an unrenewed mind. And an unrenewed mind is characterized in scriptures in, in three, way, three ways. Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, and 1 Corinthians Timothy 5, 6, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. He talks about a corrupt mind. And in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he talks about a carnal mind. That is enmity against God. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 1, he talks about a fleshly mind. An unrenewed mind is obviously not in tune with God, but it's in tune with the world, it's in tune with the flesh, our sinful propensity, and in, and in tune with the fallen world we live in, and with the prince of the power of the air. So, there is, so this creates a conflict in the life of the person. In contrast, the renewed mind is characterized in scriptures, in the scripture, in four ways. In Romans chapter eight, verse six, he talks about a spiritual mind. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse twelve, he talks about a willing mind. In Second Corinthians chapter four, verse one, he talks about a sound mind. And in Second Peter chapter three, in verse one. Talks about a pure mind. This is these four characteristics 
characterize a mind than ha- that has been renewed by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, by the washing of the water of the Word as we noticed last night. It should be obvious that a renewed mind is imperative in finding and filling your place in the body of Christ. In fact, I, I believe that it's dangerous to attempt to exercise one's spiritual gift having an unrenewed mind. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul indicates that the outworking of being carnal is that it causes envy, strife, and division. And again I say that a renewed mind is imperative to finding and filling your place in the body of Christ. The, uh, the third prerequisite to finding and filling your place in the body of Christ for the use of your spiritual gifts is a proper self-concept. And I, I take that from verse 3, where, uh, where Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. A proper self-concept, the third prerequisite to finding and filling your place in the body of Christ. And, and, and notice uh, notice uh, three things about this matter of having what I'm calling a proper self-concept. And the first one is, and, and it, it's found here in, in, in verse 3, so let me just sort of pull it apart a little bit here. The first one is that it means that one must not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now, the, the word to think highly is one word in the Greek text. It, it means to esteem oneself over much or to be arrogant. The implication in verse 3 is that every man has a tendency. Say this carefully, but if I know myself and I understand the human personality. <laughs> that the implication in verse 3 is that every man has a tendency to think more highly of himself than he or she ought to think. I, I know there, there might be even some, of, some among you here that uh, feel um, shy like I do. <laughs> I'm really a very shy person on the inside. But Regardless, uh, uh, every person has uh, a way of thinking of himself more highly than he ought to think. And that is because of the virus of sin that we have a natural bend, a natural bias toward pride and self-exaltation. Someone has said to himself, every man is the most important person in the world. Right? I, I don't even know who said that, but I, somewhere I read that quote. It sounded right. T.S. <laughs> Eliot said, most of the trouble in the world is caused by people who want to be important. Think about that. Okay? Christ in Isaiah 46, 
Isaiah prophesied against those who say, I am. And there's no one beside me. Very come true, right? Matthew Henry has said, those do not know themselves best who think best of themselves. A former student of mine at SMEI several years ago said, it takes character to be talented and humble at the same time. I thought that was pretty good. We, we tend toward self-exaltation. Well, when we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, that hidden agenda, that hidden agenda toward greatness and self-importance, to go. That hidden agenda toward desiring to be important needs to die if we want to properly fill our place in the body of Christ. And so, the first thing that Paul says about this is not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But, he said, he needs to think Soberly. This means to think soberly about yourself means to think rightly about yourself. In other words, that's what I'm talking about having the proper self concept. This does not mean that you need to think of yourself in a depreciating kind of way. To think of ourselves as, well, I'm just a worm in the dust, not worth much. No. <laughs> that is not having a pre- proper self-concept. To think of ourselves in a depreciating kind of way is often an attempt at self, at false humility. Or maybe the result of having been deeply wounded sometime in our lives in the past. This is important because the fact of the matter is that how we evaluate ourselves affects how we evaluate others. And, and true humility, uh, and I don't know where this, where this, I, I didn't come up with this with myself, this idea. I don't even know where I got it, but true humility is not so much a matter of self-depreciation as it is self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. I, I, I love to preach when I should just forget myself. <laughs> and maybe even forget all of the important people that are sitting in front of me. <laughs> but this matter of self-forgetfulness perhaps is the key to to humility. The fact is that we are created in the image of God. And that means that we have dignity. And we have worth before God. And that helps us properly to properly fill, fill our place in the body of Christ. To think, think soberly, to have an accurate evaluation of ourselves. Think properly of yourself.
know, uh, you know, I for 35 years I, I worked with people who had a lot of um, drunkenness and uh, this kind of thing who you know, devastated their lives. But you know, um, we we say that they're not sober, but that, that perhaps is talking about the word in a different sense, but I, I, uh, I remember one night I was coming home late at night, maybe 2 o'clock in, in, the, in the morning, um, and it was still look out, and, and that's when the, that's when the, um, uh, the alcohol place was empty out, and, and they shut the doors, and, and I came down driving through Main Street, and and there was uh, my friend uh, Scotty Wood, uh, who I had stopped at his house to visit him and share the gospel with him a number of times. And there he was, going down the sidewalk, and he was barely making it from from one parking meter to the next, <laughs> but he couldn't. He couldn't see from the top of it because he was So he was staggering. It was, it was the dead of winter. So I pulled over and opened my, the passenger door of my vehicle and said, Scotty, get in. I'll take you home. He couldn't. He, he, he did not see properly. He did not have a a proper concept of where things were and, uh, and everything was distorted. Well, that's all the saying. We need to have a proper self-concept, not a distorted one. But we need a proper self-concept that helps us fill and find and fill our place in the body of Christ. And then there's a third thing here that uh, Paul says in verse 3, and that is that it, it should be, we should uh, evaluate ourselves according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Now, I thought a long time about this. What does this mean? Evaluate yourself, Paul is saying, according to how God has dealt to you the measure of faith. The phrase measure of faith doesn't mean how much faith you have, how great your faith is, but it has to do with the realness and the genuineness of your faith. See, genuine faith in God doesn't produce pride. It produces humility. Because when we receive something by faith, it is of necessity by grace. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. So Paul asked the penetrating question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, when he says, what do you have that you haven't received? You know, what, what, all, what all this seems to boil down to is that we should see ourselves in light of our relationship with God, according to us, how God that has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So we should see ourselves, a proper self-concept is seeing ourselves in the light of our relationship with God and not see ourselves in comparison to others. William Schuller, in his small book uh, on, 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 on overview of Romans, says that the measure of faith re- refers to God's provision to fulfill a specific calling, state, place, or function, not office, within the church. And those places and offices or functions are found are mentioned in verses 86 through 8. 
So the, the third prerequisite, as I find in the text here, is to um, have a proper self-concept in order to find and fill our place in the body of Christ. Now the fourth prerequisite I find in verses 4 and 5, where, it, where in essence it is telling us that there must be within us a willingness to fit in with other members of the body. This is, the, as far as I'm concerned, the fourth prerequisite that uh, you find in the first uh, five verses of Romans chapter 12. Let me read verse 4 and 5 again. For as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There you have it. Members one of another. And, and, and so we must, we must uh, be willing to... to, to uh, find our place, willing to fit in with other members of the body. Lee Camp, in Mere Discipleship, writes, One important aspect of the body metaphor for the church is that life in Christ is a corporate endeavor, not merely an individual pursuit. You see, um, I read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, and uh, I, in essence, I find it saying to me that one stone does not a temple make. <laughs> First Peter chapter two and verse five says, "He also, as living stones, plural, are built up in a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." But one stone. It's not a body. It's not a temple made. It takes many stones together, and they must be fitly framed together. Paul says in the book of Ephesians. Now, I, uh, I've been a mason by by uh, trade, uh, and uh, I I love to do stonework, and I have I often find that whenever I lay a stone. It's unusual if I don't have to chip a little bit here and a chip a little bit there in order to fit it together with other stones in the wall or in the fireplace. We must be fitly framed together in the body of Christ. And we must be willing to function together in the body of Christ. In the, in the local church. So, a, a, a fourth pre- a prerequisite here is a willingness to fit in with other members of the body. We are fellow citizens with saints in the household of God. You also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Yes, a willingness to fit in with other members of the body, to be fitly framed together, is an important prerequisite to finding and filling that place in the body of Christ. Now, let me, uh, let me do a little bit over uh, a review um, of these four prerequisites. Prerequisite number one, what is it? To be totally available to God. Prerequisite number two. A renewed mind. Requisite number three. A proper self-concept. Requisite number four. Fit in with other members of the body of Christ. Four important prerequisites for finding and filling our place in the body of Christ. Hoping to uh, spend some time in uh, verses six through eight. Uh, let me let me at least read it to you before I close. Um, 
and I won't be able to make a lot of comments on this, but this, uh, so now Paul goes immediately into uh, talking about what those uh, seven places are, at least seven places uh, that, uh, that, that are found in the body of Christ that need to be filled. So verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them in prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. For he that teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then what, what you have, just to give you a, a brief overview of, of the rest of this uh, passage. So in, in verses 6 through 8, you have the, uh, Paul talks about the places that are to, to be filled. And it often referred to as the spiritual gifts. And then verses 9 through 13, he talk, talks about eight character qualities that are important uh, in, 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 in the use of your spiritual gifts. They go together. So, so you have uh, the, the, the functions, and then you have the character qualities, the qualities talked about in verses uh, 9 through 13. That gives you a uh, sort of an overview of uh, this particular uh, text. I would uh, uh, only uh, emphasize that, um, again, the importance of, uh, of being willing to be fitly trained together, a willingness to, to fit in with other members of the body of Christ. So important. And uh, I, I'd like to read you a little excerpt here, excerpt uh, in relation that somebody had put up called uh, the carpenter shop. There was trouble in the carpenter's workshop and the tools were having a role. One of them said, it's the hammer's fault. He is much too noisy. Nonsense, the hammer protested. I think the blame lies with the saw. He keeps going back and backwards and forwards all the time. The saw shouted, I'm not to blame. I think it's the plane's fault. His work is so shallow, you see. He does nothing but just skim the surface. The plane objected loudly. I think the real trouble lies with the screwdriver because he's always going round in circles. That's ridiculous, the screwdriver said. The whole trouble began with the ruler because he's always measuring other people by his own standards. The ruler was furious. Then what about the sandpaper? Why pick on me? Said the sandpaper. I think you ought to blame the drill for being so boring. And just as the drill was about to protest, the carpenter came in and began to work. And using every one of those tools, he built a pulpit from which the gospel of peace was preached to thousands of people. God bless you as you consider these things.